The text for the sermon is chosen from the passage we read, verses 21 and 22, where Luke describes the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ with these words, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Congregation, after the sermon, we will respond together, we will voice our amen together by singing from hymn 37, stanzas 1 and 2, words of praise to our God and our Savior. Psalm 37, 1 and 2, after the sermon. Love congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we read about Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River, one of the first questions that comes to mind, of course, is why did Jesus have to be baptized? After all, John's baptism was a baptism of cleansing. He preached the baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And wasn't Jesus the perfect Lamb of God, the Lamb without blemish? I mean, up to this time, he had already lived a perfect life. He had, he had not failed to do anything that the law required. And yet here he is, in the crowd, waiting in line with the other sinners, waiting to be baptized. It's not a surprise that John was perplexed by this too. After all, he had just declared that one greater than I is coming. John was so famous that people were wondering if perhaps he was the expected Messiah. But he told them, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming to the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so John was adamant, I am not the Christ. Someone else is coming. I am his forerunner. I am proclaiming the Christ to you. And he must increase, I must decrease. But then Christ came to John to be baptized, and we know from the Gospel of Matthew that John objected to this. He tried to prevent Jesus' baptism. He said, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? You find that in Matthew 3. <clears throat> but Jesus put a stop to John's objections and said, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, Luke doesn't, Luke doesn't relay all of this information in his gospel, but he, he does it in a more subtle way. He lets us know that Jesus' baptism was special. Right? Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, he, he separates that in a di different phrase. So he's making a distinction between Jesus' baptism and the baptism of the other people. So again, we need to ask ourselves, what was special about this? And why did Jesus have to be baptized? Why should a sinless man receive the baptism for the forgiveness of sins? For congregation to understand this, we need to think covenantally. And we need to think about Jesus' 
role in his earthly ministry as the second Adam. Adam was the father of the human race, and as such he was a type of the one who was to come. God's word tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And the Apostle Paul, in Romans 5, he expands on this. In Romans 5, beginning at verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And he says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning, whose transgression was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And then he goes on to say, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So we understand from Paul's explanation here that this is a matter of life and death. Adam's sin plunged the whole world into into sin and death, and through Adam's offense, death came to all of his descendants, without exception. In contrast, by the obedience of one man, life comes to all who believe in him. So without the perfect and active obedience of Christ, he could never have done for us what the first Adam failed to do. Again, we need to understand this in light of covenant theology. God entered into covenant with Adam. Now, theologians do not all agree on exactly how we should label that covenant and understand God's covenant relationship with Adam. Some call it the covenant of creation. Others call it the covenant of love. Others call it a covenant of works. We won't go into the finer points of that discussion right now, but it's important to understand what this covenant meant for Adam and for his descendants, for Adam and for us. You may know, perhaps, that the name Adam is simply the Hebrew word Adam, which means man. So Adam represents the human race. And so when God entered into covenant relationship with Adam, he entered into covenant with 
all people, all of Adam's descendants. And that means that his promises to Adam then, both positive and negative, extended to all of Adam's descendants. Even if Adam had been obedient to all of God's covenant stipulations, he would live forever. Then all the benefits and the blessings of the covenant would belong to him and to his children forever. But if he ignored the stipulations of the covenant, he would invoke the sanctions of the covenant, namely death. Right? That's what God said to them. In the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And we know the story. We know what happened. Right? Adam and Eve caved in to the temptation of Satan. They caved in. They listened to his deceitful talk. They took what was not their right to take. They placed themselves on God's throne. They dethroned God. Or they attempted to. They wanted to put themselves in his position. But then God enacted the sanctions of the covenant. Death entered the world. And immediately after sin, Adam and Eve died spiritually. That means they were immediately alienated from God. And at the same time, death entered their bodies. The process of death and decay began immediately following their sin. But that's not the end of the story. Right? We know that God graciously postponed the judgment of death, of physical death. Adam and Eve were allowed to live for many years. God tempered his judgment with grace and mercy. He promised that Satan's success was not permanent, that it would turn to failure. He promised that one day a descendant of man of Adam, a descendant of Adam and Eve, would defeat Satan. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So a new Adam would come to do what the first Adam failed to do. And this new Adam would be perfect. He would be perfectly obedient. This new Adam would fulfill all of the covenant obligations of God's stipulations. His works would be perfect, without fault and without error. And as the second Adam, then it would be necessary for him to fulfill all righteousness, as Jesus told John the Baptist. And that's exactly what Christ came to do. He needed to live a perfect human life. Why? Because the demands and the stipulations of God's covenant have not changed. They remain in effect. Only perfection is good enough to please God. There's only one way to be justified before God, and that is by perfect works. And you might say, well, hold on a minute. That, that's not what we normally hear. Right? Doesn't it say in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Well, let me read that verse once more, and I'll read it slightly differently. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of your works, but as a result of Christ's works, so that no one may boast. It's true, we are not saved on the basis of our works, but we are saved on the basis of Christ's works. We perish because of the imperfect works of the first Adam, and because of our own imperfect works. But you will be saved through the perfect work of 
of the second Adam. His perfect work is imputed to you when you believe and trust in him. So there is only one who ever satisfied the law of God. And that is why his submission to the baptism of John is a matter of life and death. You are justified by works, but not your own works. Only Christ is our righteousness. There, there is nothing that can remove or cover the blemishes of our heart and our soul unless it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who is without blemish. He removes those spots and blemishes from your soul. And so Jesus went into the water and was baptized. He submitted to that requirement so that his acts of righteousness would be perfect. Obviously, he did not have to be baptized because of his own sins. He did this voluntarily. He deliberately joined with sinners. And he stood in the line. He stood in a crowd of sinners. And, and in their baptism for the forgiveness of their sins, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized, Luke writes. Right? There's a distinctive about Jesus' baptism, but at the same time, there's something similar about it too. He was baptized along with all other sinners. It was an act of obedience, but also an act of solidarity. Jesus was taking the place of sinners. We're reminded here of what Isaiah said. In Isaiah 53, he was numbered with the transgressors. And that's what's emphasized in the genealogy of Jesus as recorded by Luke. Now you may know that the genealogy of Jesus as recorded by Matthew in Matthew 1 is different than the one Luke records. Now Matthew is writing two Jews and four Jews. So Matthew is emphasizing the kingship of Jesus. And Matthew's genealogy goes from Abraham to Jesus. And it goes through David and Solomon and all the legitimate kings of Israel. So Matthew is trying to show the Jews and us that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of David. But Luke goes from Jesus all the way back to Adam. And I agree with those commentators who say that Luke is using the genealogy of Mary. Right? He starts with um, saying that Jesus was the son of of Joseph, as was supposed, right, the son of Joseph. So, what Luke is doing, he's starting with the grandfather or the father of Mary, and going all the way back to Adam. And he is emphasizing thereby that Jesus was truly human, a descendant of Adam. He was part of Adam, the human race. He traces his lineage to Mary. So Luke is saying Jesus really is the son of the son of the son of sinners. He was born into a fallen race of sinners. And his lineage can be traced all the way back to the first Adam. And therefore he truly is the second Adam. Well, Adam was the first son of God, the created son of God. Jesus is the only begotten of the one and only son of God. God. And he is the one who fulfills the promise made to Adam and Eve after the fall into sin. And therefore, as the second Adam, and in order to fulfill all righteousness, he had to live the life that the first Adam could not live and did not live. And that's why he submitted to the baptism 
of John. Adam and all his descendants failed to live up to the ideal, God's ideal. But God's ideal was not forsaken. God did not forsake that ideal. And in this baptism, the true son of Adam enters the water with sinners as himself would be in the firstborn son to redeem and restore the original ideal of sonship. And that's significant congregation. Because the water of baptism represents judgment. And baptism itself represents new life. In scripture, water represents judgment. Think of the great flood during the time of Noah. Or think of the judgment on the Egyptians in the Red Sea. And perhaps you recall that our form for baptism, in, in the prayer following right after the form, the prayer refers to Israel's crossing of the Red Sea and the fact that Pharaoh's army drowned in the Red Sea, by which baptism was signified. Right? So Israel entered the Red Sea, but by God's grace and through faith they emerged from the waters. The Egyptians, however, did not believe, and they drowned in the same waters that saved Israel. Well, in the same way, the baptism of Jesus is a picture of judgment and salvation. Just as Israel went down into the waters of the Red Sea, Jesus goes down into the waters of judgment. And those waters ultimately point to the cross and to the death of Christ, as Paul explains in Romans 6. The water that Jesus entered is the water of judgment. Just like the Red Sea was the water of judgment for the Egyptians. But by entering the waters of judgment as the second Adam, Jesus is portraying his ultimate task. And that task is to take away the sins of his people, to take those sins upon himself into judgment. But then he also emerges from those waters. And that portrays the life and salvation for all who believe and trust in him. So Jesus begins his earthly ministry by foreshadowing the end of his ministry. His entry into the Jordan pictures his death, his emergence from the Jordan pictures his resurrection. This is the whole purpose for Jesus coming. His death and resurrection is pictured right here at his baptism. The congregation, our salvation is pictured here too. Just as Jesus rises from the waters of judgment, our sins are placed upon him and washed away in that water and gone forever when we believe the cross of him. So by submitting to the baptism of John, Jesus not only declares his solidarity with sinners, but he also declares his intention to complete the task that his Father has given him to do. That's how he marked the beginning of his ministry. And the Father in heaven is pleased by the obedience of his son. And that's evidence in what happened immediately after Jesus' baptism. Luke records that Jesus was praying. We don't know the content of that prayer, but we do know how that prayer was answered. The heavens were opened. Many people were baptized by John in the Jordan, but the heavens did not open at their baptism. But when Christ was baptized, and as he was praying, the heavens were opened. That means... God is revealing himself to people. And then the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in the form of a dove. This was no private event, congregation. This was not something that Jesus just felt in his heart. It was visible 
a visible reality. The other Gospels tell us that John saw the Holy Spirit coming down from heaven like a dove. It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't already have the Holy Spirit. We know he did, but he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. We read in Luke chapter 2 that he, even as a, a little boy, he was filled with the Spirit's wisdom. But at his baptism, the Spirit made a public declaration that he was with Jesus. He was with the Son of God and the Son of Adam for his ministry on earth. Right? And we know the implications of his anointing throughout the Gospels. Look at, right away, the next verse in chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Right? And by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, he overcame temptation. And he preached the gospel, he preached the kingdom of God, and he performed miracles, and he was led to the cross for our sins. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was also raised from the dead. He did not do his work independently in the power of the Holy Spirit. Later on in Acts chapter 10, Luke writes, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. The congregation, that same glorious spirit has also descended on us. John told the crowds who came here and preached, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Christ gives us a superior baptism to that of John. He gives us his spirit. The spirit that Christ gives us is the same mighty spirit who descended on him. The same mighty spirit who was with him throughout his ministry. And now we serve Christ in the power of that same spirit. Trusting the spirit to give us grace to repent, grace to do good works, and grace for our works to be effective in the kingdom of God. And then the Father speaks. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Here's the climax of the passage. Here's the exaltation of Christ as the only son of God. Again, not some private message that only Jesus heard. The father revealed his voice. He wanted people to know, this is my beloved son. This is my eternal son. And he wants everyone to know that he is pleased with his son. Note the word the wording, or the order of the wording, with you, I am well pleased. So the, the Father is pleased with the person of His Son. He's, he is pleasing to the Father just because He is His Son. But He is also pleased with the Son's obedience. By submitting to baptism, Jesus was choosing to take part, the part of the sinful descendants of Adam. He was agreeing to carry out the task that His Father has set out for Him. <coughs> He was agreeing to satisfy God's justice and to die for sinners, to pay that penalty. And so the Father blessed him. And the Father's approval rested on him throughout his ministry. And the Father was pleased when Jesus obeyed his parents. And when he resisted temptation, when he taught parables, when he healed the blind and the lame, or the blind and the lame, Father was pleased with Jesus' life and prayer. And most of all, he was pleased with Jesus' sinful sacrifice, sinless sacrifice, which he offered on the cross. He was pleased with all of it. 
For we know the Father was pleased with Christ and with his obedience because he raised him from the dead. The ultimate proof of his approval. Dear congregation, brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel is that if you repent from your sins, and if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then God will be pleased with you too. The Father's words of affection and approval, they are for His Son, and for everyone who believes in His Son. We know the things that we do are not pleasing to God. We are not saved by our own works. We had to stand before the Father on our own merit. We would never gain His approval. Never. But we do not stand before Him on the basis of our own works. We stand before God on the basis of Christ's works. And then the Father looks upon us with the same affection and approval with which He looks upon Himself. That is the good news of the gospel. My dear brothers and sisters, this is our only comfort and our only hope in life and in death. It's our only comfort and hope when we're ill, when we're lonely, when we're fearful or anxious. It's our only comfort and hope when we are, when we are burdened by our sins, the great weight of our sins. Remember that you stand before God on the basis of the second Adam, of what he has done, and that God is pleased with what he has done for you. So praise God that Jesus went into the water of judgment and was baptized. And praise God that the Father is pleased with the perfect obedience of his Son, that he empowered him with his Holy Spirit. It is only because of the Father's pleasure in the second Adam that we can escape from the consequences of the sin of the first Adam. Rejoice, brothers and sisters, rejoice that God the Father is pleased with Christ with mercy. Amen.